Well, whether we like it or not, we live in a time where commitment is unfashionable. Half of all marriages end in divorce because one spouse neglects his or her duties and responsibilities or because both people fall out of love or both people just wake up one day and realize they don't like each other very much. Some will say that the the divorce rate is down, which is certainly a cause for celebration, but the marriage rate is also down. This means that, yes, people are not getting divorced at the same rate as they once were because they simply aren't getting married at all. Millennials, those born in the early 1980s and after, on average will change jobs four times before they turn 32 years old, staying at each job an average of four years. Over 90% of millennials expect to stay at a job less than four years, which means they'll likely have 15 to 20 jobs in their lifetime. Gone are the days when someone begins work for a company at 18 and then stays until retirement. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Upward advancement in the business world is a fine goal to have, but it simply illustrates the culture that we live in does not have the same idea of commitment that maybe we once did. When it comes to your income, there are advantages to moving when a better job offer comes. But we know that this phobia to commitment doesn't start and end in the workplace. What we uh, have is good, but what happens if something better comes along? We accept a job offer or, or choose a college or we meet that attractive person that we've dreamed of our whole lives. And life is good. But what happens when what seems like a better job, or a more prestigious college, or a better looking person of your dreams comes? So we want to keep our options open just in case something better or more attractive comes our way. Now on the surface, in some ways, it doesn't seem like such a terrible thing. But it can be when we realize that thinking extends into other areas of our lives. Do you have a fear of commitment? Do you have a negative attitude toward making a commitment and sticking to it even when times get tough? What about your attitudes towards the church? See, most Christians recognize their need for fellowship with other Christians, and how that happens is a topic of debate for many, but it is impossible for someone to believe the Bible, to put their hope in Christ, trust in God's Word, and conclude that meeting together with other Christians really isn't that important. Now, some will argue that they can do that over breakfast. Others will say that they can do that with a Christian neighbor over coffee. Others, like this church, believe that when the Bible talks about gathering together and being part of the assembly of the saints, it means the local church. But whatever your definition of assembly and fellowship may be, we can all agree that we need to be spending time with one another. Debate begins, however, when the topic of church membership is brought up. Now, I believe that the church church membership is a biblical thing based on a number of scriptures that I see. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping a watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This means that every church needs to have leaders who know the people in the church. 
Shepherds, pastors, elders, whatever word you want to use, it means the same thing. And those men have to give an account for the souls of the people inside of their church, that God has charged them to shepherd and to lead. Passages like Matthew 18 tell us the same thing, where if we have an issue with one of our brothers or sisters, how we're supposed to handle that. And the ultimate, the, the, the end of that story is that if someone refuses to repent for a public sin, they're to be excommunicated, sent away, cast out of the fellowship. Now they can still come and, and, and worship, but they're no longer part of the church family, and we are called to treat them as outsiders. Which begs the question then, if someone can be excommunicated, that must necessarily mean that there is a membership at the beginning. You can't get kicked out of something that you're not part of in the first place. But this isn't a message defending the biblical basis of church membership. My aim this morning is to show you how membership matters because membership ties us to the local church and it's through the local church that we grow in our faith. And it's also through the local church that the message of the gospel spreads throughout the world. So would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning we're reading verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has called us not for it, God has called us for impurity for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his holy spirit to you Now concerning brotherly love you have no need for anyone to write you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are going uh, what you are doing all the brothers throughout Macedonia but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This passage has three main points. First, it's found in verses 1 through 8. We are to walk in holiness. Point number 2, found in verses 9 and 10, we are to walk in love. And finally, in verse 11, we are to walk in maturity. Walk in holiness, in love, and in maturity. First, let's look at how we're, we are to walk in holiness. Now, walking in holiness has two subpoints here. Verses 1 and 2 say that we are first to please God. This is the foundation of the Christian walk. The fact is that we all aim to please someone. Now, we can say that we aim to please God, but most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we aim to please either ourselves or someone else. This is the question before us. Who do we live for? Do we live for ourselves 
Do you seek to fulfill your own desires no matter what it costs? Maybe you've elevated your spouse to this level. For many people with children, we elevate our children to this level. We want to please them. We want to do everything we can to make their life good. From their education to sports, your life and your schedule revolves around your children. See, the truth of the matter is we all live to please someone. But the truth is also this, that if we aim to please anybody but God, we are creating an idol out of that person or that thing. Yes, those things that I've mentioned are good things, but we have a tendency to take good things and make them into idols, something they were never intended to be. And this is so important if we're to understand the Christian life. We cannot claim to know God if we do not seek to please him with all that we have. Our purpose for being, the entire purpose of why God created us is to bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. And we do that by living a a life that's aimed at pleasure given to him, not to ourselves. Now you may be thinking this, well that's great, but you often preach that we can't do enough to please God on our own. Well, you're right. I think that having a list of spiritual do's and don'ts is not a good idea because it leads us to believe that we have some control over our eternity when in fact it's only through the work of Jesus that we can be saved. But the challenge is not to find ourselves engaging with a list. So how do we seek to please God by living for him when we know from the beginning that no matter what we do, it's never going to be enough? It seems so counterintuitive. The standard that God has set for his people is more about pleasing the lawgiver than it is about obeying the law. If our goal is to please God, we can't ever make the claim that we've arrived. There is no mountaintop place of enlightenment in the Christian faith. There is no moment that we can sit back and say, well, we did it. No matter how much we live for God, we are called to please him more and more. This is a mark of the Christian faith. You have an unquenchable desire to grow more in your faith. You want to pray more. You want to learn more. You want to fellowship more. You want to worship more. You want to sing more. You want to share the gospel more. Not because you have to but because that's what pleases God. And a a heart that's been changed by the gospel is a heart that seeks to do more and more. This is also a mark of a healthy church. The body as a whole desires to grow in their walk with Jesus. This means embracing the spiritual disciplines and learning more. That's sub-point one. Sub-point two is found in verses three through eight. We are to abstain from immorality. We are to control ourselves. It is the will of God that we control ourselves. Why? Because God has called us to holiness. Now Paul writes that this is the will of God, our sanctification. Now this word means to to make holy or separate. It means that something is made pure or free from guilt. 
Paul says that our bodies are to be kept clean, not because it's culturally appropriate. And you and I know this, that what the culture outside of the Christian faith believes to be appropriate is not what the Bible says to what it means to be appropriate. Christians want to keep themselves holy because, like we just saw, our primary desire, which means our reason to live, is to glorify God. God sets the standards, not us. God's standard is unchanging. And from the beginning, God has given humanity the standard by which we are to live. Our bodies are to be kept clean for God. The culture in which Paul lived wasn't that much different than ours. Paul was in Corinth writing to the church in Thessalonica. Both places were known for their immorality. The history of the Greco-Roman world was full of debauchery and filth. It wasn't just tolerated, it was celebrated. It was part of the culture. Now we obviously are a few thousand years past this Greco-Roman influence. And we are obviously sheltered living in East Tennessee. Bad things still happen here though. What I think that the sheltering has done for us is both good and bad. It's good because it shields us from having to see the depravity of man every single day. We don't have to step over or walk past horrible things like so many people across the world do. But it's bad because it gives us a false sense of reality. Have you ever been on vacation? And you go to a city, a large city, and as you're walking around or as you're driving around, it seems like almost every corner you're seeing something that, that you've never seen before. It's a culture shock. It makes you uncomfortable, and maybe you're shielding your kid's eyes or telling them to look the other way. Things that you never imagined you would see are happening right in front of you. This is the kind of stuff that was happening and being celebrated in the cultures that Paul was writing to. Wicked pagan practices. The Anglican priest John Stott wrote in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians this. If the heathen behave as they do because they do not know God, Christians must behave in a completely different way because we do know God. And because he is a holy God, because he is our God, and because we want to please him. So I want to keep reminding you about the standard that God has set for his people we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Romans 2 or 12, 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be set apart. Different. Now, some people hearing me may, hear, may think this, well, Ryan, I've done all of those bad things before. Even after I became a Christian, I still did bad things. I still did things that, that the Bible would say is unclean. What happens now? Unapologetically, I want to say that God's standard matters. We are sinning whenever we miss the mark of what God says. So what happens to someone who's been unclean? For someone who isn't a Christian, that guilt still lays on you. God has told you what he expects of you, and that is to be clean, and you have not been clean. Therefore, God's punishment, the justice, will be poured out upon you. 
The punishment that God promises is death. But the Christian has great joy in knowing that he or she is not judged on how clean they are. They are judged in the perfection of Jesus. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved and he gave us his spotless righteousness. And it's a shame to say this, but too many sermons have been preached and too many conversations have been had that simply tell people that Christians need to behave better to stay pure. Listen, I I want us all to behave better, and I want us all to be pure, but that doesn't happen because it has any power to save me. Rather, I want to do those things, and I hope you do too, because it pleases God. If you've done those things that are shameful, and that you know that have gone against God's standard, congratulations, you're a human being. The guilt that you may carry can be taken off of your shoulders and placed on Jesus. That's what he promises. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus has promised to take those things that we've carried for so long, and he promises to make our load lighter. And I hope you see that these passages like this are not just about behavior modification. They are about how Jesus can fix what we've broken. We are to walk in holiness. And Christian, that means walking in the strength and the power that only Jesus can give. The second point this morning is found in verses 9 and 10. We are to walk in love. One of the defining marks of a local church is its love, first for those in the, communi- in the church community, in the, the body of believers, and then next extending out into the community, the non-believers, the people who are not followers of Christ. This love is described in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. Look at these verses with me. We are told to respect leaders in verses 12 through 13. It says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Next, we show our love by warning those in the church family who are idle. Verse 14 says, admonish the idle. Now, this word could be translated as disorderly or deviating from the prescribed order or path. What this means is that the church shows its love for one another by correcting someone's bad behavior. We also show our love by encouraging the faint-hearted. This is also found in verse 14. This means that we lift up those who have circumstances that are causing them to doubt the truth of God's word or maybe even doubt the faith itself. Also found in this verse is a command to help the weak. Now, aren't these things the way that we grow spiritually as Christians? This is not surprising to you if you've spent much time in the Bible. This is a, a mark of Christian spiritual maturity and growth. So the Christian's aim is to walk in holiness and walk in love. And in verse 11, we see that we are also to walk in maturity. Let's read this verse again, verse 11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 
Some people in the church in Thessalonica had, had begun to believe some strange things about Paul's teaching on the return of Christ. There was fanaticism and laziness in this weird combination of the two. Now you can see how this would happen. If you thought that Jesus was going to return in a few weeks, most, most of us would go to one or two, one of two extremes. Either we would go to the fanatic extreme where we would sell everything that we have, we would create billboards, take out ads on television, and, and do as much as we can to get the word out. On the other end, uh, there would be some of us who would say, well, since Jesus is going to return, and we know it's going to happen soon, that we're just going to sit and do nothing. They would neglect these things that God has told us to do to live lives that please and honor and glorify him. You see the two extremes. Now, Paul was writing to a church that seemed to have something like that happening in that congregation. And Paul said that they should do more and more and aspire to live quietly. In other words, you have a job to do as a follower of Christ, so do those things and live a life of peace. Let's apply this to 2020. We just had a presidential election where a little over half of the country voted for one candidate and a little less than half voted for the other candidate question is, how many people were upset at the results of the election? Almost half. How many Christians have been angry that things didn't go their way? Many. Those who have been set upset for over a month, many of us, or many of them, were jubilant over what happened in 2016. And many were angry again in 2008 and 2012. Now, I've watched this happen every four years, and as a pastor, I brace for one of these two extremes to happen, either extreme celebration or extreme sadness. And I also anticipate that anger will come out of every election cycle. So what Paul is saying to the church is applicable to us today. He's saying that Christians should mind their own business, and in doing that, we show our love for one another. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying you can't have political opinions. I'm not saying you can't support a candidate. I'm not saying that you can't even do that vocally because you certainly can, that you're right as an American. But what I think Paul's encouragement to Christians means for us is the same thing that it meant for the church in Thessalonica. Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and that's a way to walk in maturity. And thus, it is a way we can show our love for one another. Now you may be wondering now, kind of the natural progression of things. If we're supposed to live quietly and mind our own business, what in the world do we do with Jesus' command in Matthew 18? And that command says this, that if you have a brother or a sister that has sinned against you, you don't go tell the church first. You don't make phone calls. You don't send texts. You don't gossip. You go directly to that person. And if that doesn't work, you take one or two other people with you and you go to that person and, and you ask them to repent and to, 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 to make things right. And if they refuse to do that, then you tell it to the church. And then if they still refuse after that, the church is to excommunicate them, to send them away as a Gentile, as a non-believer. See, church discipline is a required act that churches must do. And yes, it isn't what most people would say is minding your own business. It's uncomfortable. 
However, church discipline is an act of telling the church about the seriousness of sin. It's always intended to win the person back to Christ and to the local church. So what Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians is not contradicting what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Paul is referring to Christians in the church who can't seem to stay quiet. Those who need to know everything and be involved in everything and always keeping up on the latest news and giving opinions, causing dissension and disruption in the local church. That's what Paul is speaking to. And he's saying that walking in maturity means living quietly, minding your own affairs, and doing something productive. See, those three things are a way that the Christian can grow spiritually. Walk in holiness, love, and maturity. Now look at verse 12, and we're going to see the result. We do these things so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We do these things because it is our gospel witness. There are marks of a spiritually mature Christian here, and if you claim to follow Jesus and you show no sign of growing in holiness, love, and maturity, you may not be a follower of Christ after all. A Christian is one who is seeking to grow daily in those things. Now that's about the individual believer. But when we look at the entire storyline of Scripture, we see a strong emphasis on people. Yes, individuals must respond to the call of the gospel. Individuals must repent and trust in Christ. But those individuals are called into a people. God worked through Moses, but he called the Israelites. And God calls you to respond in repentance and faith, but where does he call you? He calls you to the local church. Where do we learn to walk in holiness, love, and maturity? This sounds like the purpose of the church, doesn't it? Pastor Mark Dever writes this. It's a little long, but I want to read this. He says this. It's no accident that Paul was so concerned for these Christians to be holy and loving. Because God has called the church together in order to be a picture, a reflection of his character. So, in being holy and loving, these Christians would reflect the character of their father, who has shown himself to be, perhaps more than anything else, holy and loving. The way to be a growing church, then, is by reflecting the character of the one who called us to be a church in the first place. After all, if we're not going to do that, we're not growing anyway, however many people may be coming along. If we grow as Christians or as churches, we grow for his glory, not for our own. And I think this is the way that we will see real growth. Listen to Paul's closing prayer for the Thessalonians at the end of his letter. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And Dever quotes this at the end. He says, and... At the end of the day, then, our growth in holiness is a promise. Church, it's so easy to get consumed by numerical growth. Bigger attendance, bigger church buildings, bigger budgets. Higher attendance must mean that the church is successful, right? We do sometimes see examples of faithfulness. A faithful church, and God brings people more and more to the congregation, but that's not the idea of biblical success. 
That's what goes into our mind when we think of growth. When someone says we need to grow the church, most people think that we need to bring more people into the church, that more numbers need to come, and those are wonderful things, but that's not the primary purpose of what we do here. I don't see it that way because I don't think the Bible says it that way. And the truth of the matter is that if you scan the largest churches in the United States, most of those churches are more focused on growing numbers than they are growing disciples. So what is the way that we measure success? Biblical faithfulness and spiritual growth. Those are the two things. Now how is that shown? It's shown by loving one another. Look at 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he, has, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keeping loving, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Over and over in the Bible, we see that we have been called to love one another. Now, why is this? Some of us would rather be called to learn more or to do acts of service or kindness. But to love one another is hard because what it means is that we have to love those who we think sometimes are unlovable. Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What we see in the New Testament is a love for others is a part of being a church member. Being part of the local church then translates to living on mission. Why does the Bible talk about love so much? Look at John, 1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins we love one another because God first loved us. This is where everything ties together. As Christians, we are to walk in holiness and love and maturity. And we do this best unapologetically inside the local church. And the local church is the means by which God has chosen to spread the message of the gospel throughout the world. Read through the New Testament. It is not Mission agencies, as good as those are, that's not who Jesus came for. It is not parachurch ministries, as good as they may be, that is not who Jesus came for. It's the church. The local church is the means by which God has chosen to spread the message of the gospel throughout the world. See, growing as a Christian is not just for your personal fulfillment your growth as a, as a believer affects the church and it affects your witness. Your growth directly contributes to your gospel witness. I believe that the American culture 
is so consumed with wealth and comfort that we have forgotten that our spiritual growth is tied directly to the local assembly. My prayer is that our church remains unified under the authority of Christ and that we seek to focus on growth, not numerical growth, but deep spiritual growth that seeks to live a life of holiness, love, and maturity. Would you pray with me?